season two, episode two of Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast all about good things to cook and read with me, food writer Sophie Hansen and bibliotherapist, psychotherapist Jermaine Lees. Hi, Jermaine. How are you going? Hi, Sophie. Um, Good. It's great to be back already only a couple of weeks later. I know. And before Um, we started, I I just wanted to quickly say a massive thank you to all our very special friends over at Substack, our founding supporters for coming along on our little ride with us and supporting the newsletter because that means that we can keep recording and we're really grateful to you. And Mm. actually, we were just chatting and saying how excited we are about building this little community of people who love books and reading and cooking and food. So it's it's an exciting time. It really does feel like. Yeah, it is. It feels like we've got like a lot of like-minded friends, yes. don't we? Yeah. And it's exciting to think we're more directly to them and they can be talking more directly to us as well. I like yes, that idea. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So today we are talking about a beautiful little book called Dinner with Edward by Isabel Vincent. And before we started, you had a thought you wanted to throw out mm-hmm. Well, yes, I guess my head was still back in our first episode, maybe after, you know, after we recorded that and we're talking about faction, that idea of making up or or filling out um, history and and filling out uh, people from history, real people. And you were saying that you think it's fine when it people who have long since died, just like in the language of food with Eliza Acton, but you weren't so sure if people were still alive. And I was as you said that, I thought, oh, yeah, I don't think I've read any faction of people who are still alive anyway, aside from watching The Crown on Netflix. Mm. A few days after that, it suddenly came to me in the shower, the shower thoughts you have, that I read and love Curtis Sidenfeld's Rodham, which mm. is the reimagining of Hillary Clinton's life had she said no to Bill when he proposed. Yeah, and I just thought, actually, I felt that book worked well, but maybe it worked well because it was a... It was a parallel life rather than trying to make um, a bigger life than what, you know, she, or build on fact. Uh, until Bill proposes, I think that is very much based on fact and based on Curtis's um, research of Bill's biographies and stories around that time. And then obviously she completely deviates. But the parallel life is very much based on all those real people in politics at the time. And I just found it a really fascinating way to get further into the minds of um, moments in history, I guess. But uh, have you read that one? Yes, I have. I'm a big Curtis Sittenfield fan. I love her writing. And um, we did this book in our book club, I think, last year. And I really enjoyed it. As I said, I think she's a fabulous writer. But I felt, I did feel a bit icky the first part of the book where uh-huh. they're retelling what I imagine was closer to fact when they were dating you know were they at Harvard or anyway one yeah of those. and you know it gets a bit sexy and it's and I was like oh this oh, is someone who's like right. alive yeah. and kids and I don't know I just sort of thought oh and, and the minute she said no to the proposal and then the story kind of took off in a completely factualized mm. direction I was much more comfortable with it <laughs> but I think that's just me being I don't know, overthinking it because I guess Hillary could just choose not to read that book. But it is someone's life that she's 
kind of playing with a little bit and I just I did feel a bit icky about that but I wanted to say one other Curtis Sittenfeld book that if anyone wants a nice light read and actually Amy one of our founding subscribers if you're one of our listeners who commented recently about the book Ghost I mentioned the other day by Dolly Alderton Curtis has got a book called Eligible which is sort of sits in that vein with me it's just an absolutely delightful rollicking read it's a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice so good that's my favorite Curtis Sittenfeld book it's really fun have you read that one it's actually one I haven't read, no, and it's actually been on my Kindle like sample list for ages. It's one I've been, yeah, these books you always think I really yeah. want to read that and it sort of never comes the time. It's set it's in the fun. university, isn't it? Like um, I don't know it's the, the retelling of Pride and Prejudice. No. But oh, yeah, well, there is an academic, a, a, yes, there is oh, an academic prep. element. To I think it. I'm thinking yeah. prep. No, it's not prep. It's just really good fun and it's cleverly written and it's just, mm. yeah, you'll just rip through it. So, Amy, and anyone else who looks looking for another book after Ghost that you loved in that kind of vein, Eligible is a goodie. But anyway, I digress. I loved I loved Rodham. Yeah. I just found parts of it, as we were sort of saying, that idea of faction. I guess it can yeah, be. Yeah, that's um, oh, that's fair enough. And I, even the cover is a picture of her. Mm. I mean, I wonder what Hillary thought. I remember mm. listening to interviews with Curtis at the time talking about that, and I can't actually remember what she said about where she felt ethically about mm. taking on Hillary's life. Or I think you're right. You kind of get lost in the story in the second half because it's such fantasy. And I, I mean, I. I think I just love a sliding doors story as well. Yeah, I know what you mean about I'd forgotten the first half when they're dating. It is quite, there's some graphic parts, isn't there? There is, there is. Okay, on to our book for today. (laughs) Away from fantasy. Yeah. Back to reality. (laughs) Exactly. A memoir. And have we done a memoir? Oh, yeah, Crying in H Mart was a memoir. We haven't done many, Mm. but we've got a few coming up in this season. Okay, so Dinner with Edward by Isabel Vincent. I'll give a quick synopsis. The cover describes this book as a story of unexpected friendship. So when our two protagonists meet, Isabel is on the verge of divorce. She's deeply unhappy. She's a bit lost in this new neighbourhood of New York where she and her family have just moved to. She's in a, a reporter and she and her partner have travelled all, all over the world and reported on some pretty heavy stuff and now they've got a child and they're settling down in New York. Edward, who is the father of one of Isabel's friends, he is grieving his great love, his wife Paula, who recently died and losing a bit of his spark and his will to live. So the friend, knowing that they're now living in the same neighbourhood, asks Isabel to check in on her elderly father because she lives, I think, in Greece and she's worried about him and then the two kind of spark up a really beautiful friendship that takes off over weekly and quite elaborate dinners at Edward's house. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could say that Edward sort of cooks her back into life or a love of life. That's my little Yes, <laughs> and he also shows her the importance of slowing down and, and getting back to the or stripping her life back, I think, and on the back cover it actually says, cutting it back to the bone and examining the guts, no matter how messy that proves to be. I think they're both struggling living with the lives they've got at the moment. I mean, this is great for you because food is really the main character here because food (laughs) is what brings them or or nourishes them and brings them back to life really, isn't it? So Mm. so what did you think? What's the shape that left on you? I really did enjoy it. I I did enjoy this book. It it felt more like a long, long long-form article in the New Yorker or something rather than a novel as such. You know, not a huge amount happens. I mean, it does. We, we go mm. back in time and forwards in time, So, which is not a bad thing. Like it's a, it's really a short book. It's only 
like 240 pages mm. and you know so it's an easy read joyful read in the end it, you know it takes you through some emotions which is always you know it's a good thing for a book to do <laughs> and so and I think you know if you are in a bit of a reading slump and, the, and a huge tome is a bit kind of daunting this is a beautiful book you can just pick up and kind of and really you can luxuriate. dip it out you can dip it yeah I, I think so like you can just pick up a, a chapter even and I like how each chapter has a menu at the front of it and that kind of sets the tone for each chapter the food that Edward's cooking on that particular week but what I really loved most about this book which is not going to be a surprise to anyone who knows me is that how it just it <laughs> celebrates what a special act it is to put time into cooking for someone you know and I think I talk a lot especially in my book A Basket by the Door that really putting aside time to cook for someone I think is one of the greatest acts of love, you know, that you can do because time is a big asset these days. That then made me think of another book that I've been reading called Long Throat Memoirs by Nigerian writer Yamisi Aribisala. And I love this book. I actually think it's probably one of the most engrossing books about food I've ever read. I think her writing and her approach to the subject is so unique and vibrant and sexy. Highly recommend it. In the first chapter, she wrote something that I haven't been able to stop thinking about since I read it. And she's talking about the connections that Nigerian people have with cooking and food. And she writes, that which you eat enters your whole being, finds its way into your soul and touches your dreams. That which you cook is informed by everything about you, your mood, spirit, environment and temperament. Many Nigerians will decline a meal prepared by someone whose spirit they don't trust. Restaurant meals don't count Mm -hmm. because the food is being cooked for or aimed at the stomach of many people, not one person. Like, and I do, obviously, I love restaurants and I love going out mm. to eat very much, but I also love this idea of cooking for the stomach of one person. And I think that's what <laughs> um, what Edward did when he began cooking dinners for Isabel. Like yeah. I really imagine him sitting at his table thinking, what will she feel like? What will bring a smile to her face? What will she be hungry mm. for? Not just in terms of fuel, but, you know, sustenance and nourishment. Yeah, and, and she was so hollow and sad when she came to his table for the first time and I think those dinners did kind of touch her dreams eventually. So, I, yeah, I really liked that mm. idea of cooking for the stomach of one person rather than many. Um, not that I don't love restaurants, I love them. Yeah, and I do think that inviting people into your home is such a special act, especially, you know, when you're thinking about what exactly your guests might want to eat and how you're going to serve it to them and make it feel special. So I loved that and really got me thinking about that. I mean, all of that said, the the elaborate Mm. menus and the very time-consuming dishes that Edward prepared weekly for his guests and he'd, you know, catch the bus to a specific fishmonger and then he'd go over here to pick up a cut of beef that he'd ordered a week ago and then spend three days cooking. I think, you know, they are probably the preserve of retired person of some means. And I don't think this style of cooking necessarily suits every age and stage. Certainly I don't cook like that at the moment. I can't spend a whole week Mm. on a dinner. I'd love to, but I, I don't feel discouraged by that. You know, I think that um, you can still make a, a special meal special without spending all day or all week cooking it. You know, I, I always think like I love yeah. how Edward starts every meal with a cocktail, you know, but you could just do like a curry, yes. some beautiful baked rice, a platter of fruit and nuts, light candles, you know, play music, put flowers on the table, and that can be really special too. So we don't Definitely, always have to yeah. follow Edward's cues, I think, all the way. And I loved that it gave me new ideas for cooking and flavour combinations, all wrapped up in, you know, a really sweet story. For example, I've never cooked a roast chicken in a paper bag. Have you, Jermaine? No, no. I don't know where you'd find the paper bag. I don't know. I, I mean, cooked, I think. Um, sorry, I was going to say I, I've cooked 
uh, in a like plastic oven bag before. I remember that the it was sold at the butcher as yes, a chicken mean, in a yeah. bag, and you, they give you the bag and everything. You do that, and that was beautiful. But the paper bag, I was kind of confused about what that might even look like. Well, I'm imagining, you know, in like movies in New York, they're carrying their groceries home in a big brown paper bag. I'm kind of imagining that kind of thing. But obviously we don't have those here, so you'd have to fashion something up with parchment paper or something, I guess. So what he does is he chops up all the sort of the the onion, garlic, celery, um, carrot, and makes a little bed, put some herbs, put the chicken on top, like cooks it in the bag for about Mm. an hour and a half or something, and then rips the top open, bumps the heat up, and then finishes it off. So I guess it gets that succulent, mm. intense cooking and then that crisping golden light final minute. So it yeah. does, yeah, it sounded amazing. And yeah. I loved how much he loves souffles, which are one of my favourite things to cook. But <laughs> I have just sort of stopped. I used to make cheese souffles for Tim and I actually when we were just married before kids. I don't know why I stopped making them when the kids came along. Mm. But it was such a special, you know, talk about cooking for the stomach of one. I would never make souffles for a huge group of, group of people because it just feels a bit <laughs> full on. But, you know, the whisking and the folding and you're putting it in and it comes out and you eat straight away, I think that's really special. So he does right. a grum and yeah souffle with like an orange yeah. ice cream. It sounds amazing. So I loved that. And actually it's got me thinking so much about souffles. I'm going to, you know, subscribe a newsletter. I'm going to do a big souffle love-in and share my favourite cheese recipe. Are they, yeah, uh, go on. Oh, good. I'm wondering, are they really complicated because I always had in my head the souffle was like the ultimate sign of being able to be a cook <laughs> and so I have never ever attempted it no I don't think they I mean it's but, like anything a bit of practice basically you just make like a, a roux like you melt butter and whisk in the flour whisk in milk so you make that thick kind of white sauce add cheese add egg yeah. yolks and then whip the egg whites and then gently fold yeah. that together and then cook it straight away so it kind of it just rises, but it's not they're not difficult things as such. It's just probably I wouldn't say I'm going to cook souffles for the first time for eight of my best friends. You know, you'd want to maybe try it a couple of times on your own first. But no, they're not difficult. And you know, if it doesn't rise perfectly, it's still going to taste really delicious. Do you know what I mean? Like it's good. Okay, I think I'm going you know, to try. Gonna come I'm going to step by step. One. Oh, good. Well, we're going to come to kitchen disasters in a little bit, but I, you know. All the ingredients are delicious. If you're using good cheese and if your souffle doesn't rise perfectly, it's still going to taste delicious. But anyway, um, so thank you, Edward, for bringing souffles back into our orbit. I'm almost (laughs) finished with my shape. Oh, the other thing, I did chafe every now and then about how Edward would call Isabel baby or he you know he took her shopping to buy more feminine clothes and insisted she wore more makeup mm. you know as part of her post-divorce rediscovery and and I do appreciate yeah that you know he was of a certain time and he was such a gentleman and all his intentions were good and fatherly so you know letting that one go but did that sort of <laughs> prick your ears at all any of that stuff it did it did I hear such a, a mixture wasn't he because yes he's what 93 and there was that very patriarchal air to him and yet at the same time he was quite progressive because there's one point Mm. where Isabel's of laments there being no middle-aged men and he suggests what about a woman and Mm. she writes you know he gave her such a look of compassion and curiosity and I thought that's a pretty big thing for a 90 something year old man Mm. to say but I I know I had to kind of so very much skim over the the baby comments or the Mm. um that the idea about self-worth coming from being in a beautiful dress or high heels is um, mm. 
it was a real mix, wasn't it? Because he was such a devoted and loving husband. He loved women for their minds as well. So, but yes, as you say, he's a man of his time, but yes. kind of moving forward as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so yeah. that was the only thing that kind of chafed me a little bit. And finally, one of the things I love so much about this book was how much Isabel Vincent loves my favourite food writer of all time, um, MFK Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> and any opportunity I thought to... of you every time I read an <laughs> MFK Fisher quote, I thought, oh, Sophie will be thrilled. Oh, and, you know, it got me, I couldn't sleep last night, so I was reading a little chapter and thinking about, God, just if, if you haven't read um, The Art of Eating, which is a compendium of three of her books or any any of her writing, please go and, mm. and seek her out because it's she's just got the most beautiful way with words and describing the meaning of food and how special it is to connect over food. And she, because Isabel's getting used to the idea of eating alone, obviously she's, well, she's, she does have a child, but she's trying to sort of take her out, take herself out and enjoy eating on her own, not just eating sardines out of a tin watching, what was she watching? Something yeah. really depressing. She quotes right, this yeah. um, MFK Fisher quote, which I'm going to requote to you guys, um, which I loved about eating and cooking on your own. And this is um, MFK saying, more often than not, people who see me on trains and in ships or in restaurants feel a kind of resentment of me since I taught myself to enjoy being alone. Sometimes I would go to the best restaurants I knew about and order dishes and good wines as if I were a guest, guest of myself to be treated with infinite courtesy. I just love that idea of treating yourself with infinite mm. courtesy. That actually made me think of what we were talking about last episode with that idea of women's appetites and um, how you know mm. Lisa Winkleson was shamed from eat, for eating on her own by the media. But so yeah, oh, look, I really loved it. And you know, we talk a lot about the the shape a book leaves on us, but we haven't actually talked that much about the shape meals leave on us and um, how true. you can eat it yeah. a, a meal at a different time in your life and it'll feel different or taste different but that's what Isabel Vincent I think did really well in this book and I loved that finally it made me want to be a martini drinker <laughs> because it just seems so I know I had that too doesn't it so actually on Friday night after work I, I followed the instructions for Edward's secret martini at the end of the book and you got to chill the jar and then like infuse with the lemon zest and you know put the vermouth and the gin in and freeze the glasses and you know so Tim and I like we're sitting there on the veranda we're drinking our martinis and I was like <laughs> I so want to love it but I just it's too much neat alcohol for me I think I just had to go back to my gin and tonic yeah. but anyway I think I'm just not quite yeah. cheap enough for a martini yet <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I, well, I'm with you on that one. I um, love the idea of it just feels so adult, <laughs> that idea of sipping a cocktail before a meal. I and um, I recently I recently had a friend make us some um, Negronis, yeah, a la Stanley Tucci's you know, oh, yeah. landmark Instagram Negroni thing. Even the smell was sort of enough to knock me off my chair. It was just <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. I, I'm with you with a good gin and tonic and I have nostalgic memories of sipping my grandmother's whiskey and dry yeah I guess it's the mixer that helps me not the neat alcohol but but actually the nostalgia element of this book is what left the biggest shape on me and in fact I think when you talk about the shape of meal leaves it's the same the nostalgia was to do with the food and the meals for me and it was all about being a child watching the adult and those and and having fantasies of oh this is what like sophisticated adulthood looks like alongside that ritual of actually putting a meal together for someone you really care for just like what you were saying and 
So, yes, I can't imagine having three days to go all over Sydney to the best <laughs> fishmonger and greengrocer and things to buy my food, but I really loved going on those trips with Edward and reading about them. And it, it made me think, um, I don't know if you're – if your parents were the same, but they probably were because it was the 1980s and dinner parties, formal dinner parties were so mm. the rage. And um, I remember my parents would host dinner parties and there would be this whole long planning that my mum would have to do and suddenly there'd be strawberries in the house that were usually too expensive to have for normal, but my sister and I would be able to have a bit of strawberries and there'd be, you know, rich chocolate cake that we'd be able to have the next day for leftovers and the table was beautifully set and that would happen hours before the dinner and and if mum and dad were going to a dinner party they'd be very dressed up and Edward and the way he prepared his meals really conjured that feeling Mm. of being a child watching what the future might look like and then um, I don't know it feels like Generation X kind of invented casual dining and informal dinner parties because they haven't really been part of my adulthood aside from, um, you know, uni days. And I remember like there were so many formal 21sts and then we, when we all moved out, we, we did have some formal dinner parties so everyone could wear their tuxes yeah. and their dresses again. And I was thinking, oh, it reminded me of, you know, our menus would come out of Marie Claire Dining. Did you have the Marie yes. Claire recipe books? <laughs> I did. Well, that, were the, that was the beginning of Donna Hay, wasn't it? And that Marie it was, Claire yes. lifestyle magazine, which I loved. I agree. I loved, I, I've still got some of those issues, I think, up in the office. Yeah, so it sort of, it was a trip down, well, I guess it was a trip down fantasy memory lane because they weren't real memories. They were those memories of a child watching what might the future might look like, I guess. And mm. I really um, enjoyed the this quote well about the idea of cooking for one stomach and occasion. Um, I came to understand that dinners with Edward were rituals imbued with a sense of occasion. Sometimes we indulged in a good champagne or port served in the delicate 100-year-old glasses that he inherited from his mother. Everything unfolded with the same comforting ceremony. And I think, um, yeah, that's a pure joy that Isabel experiences from dining with Edward. I got about, I got from reading the, about the atmosphere that he managed mm. to create. But, you know, he left much more of a shape on me than she did. I, I just, well, I guess she put herself into the food, like you were saying. And the food was this metaphor for being looked after and brought back to life. And, but I just didn't feel I connected with her or her pain in the way that I connected with Edward's pain because they were both really struggling. Although actually that's not quite true because towards the end when Isabel starts cooking for herself and you, she really does start becoming a guest of herself as MFK mm. Fisher so beautifully writes, doesn't she? So I guess mm. I got a deeper sense of her then. It was more Edward I think I connected with and I, I, I think the way she talked about how he cared for so many people this way of cooking these dinners the fact that and his love for his wife um I thought was really moving and Mm. and the fact he started cooking when he retired as a way of you know a bit of a role reversal in their house and it, it was this huge ceremony and this act of love to Paula his wife and and that he felt as he ages and and becomes weaker and gets ill you know that feeling of still having control over his life all came from him being able to cook a meal didn't it or make a cocktail or Mm. and I thought she also said she 
gave a real insight into aging too in a way you don't often read about. Like there's a line and I went back trying to look for it yesterday and I couldn't find it, but he talks about understanding that he's never going to be with a woman again or touch or have the feel of a woman's skin and how hot showers on his skin are almost are nearly orgasmic for him and how they help relieve his arthritic pain and I was just really we don't read enough about what it's like to be no or, or to age or to lose a partner of 70 years or however long they'd actually been married for and I think she made him a real he was a real full person to me and not a caricature and I, I feel like Isabel was a bit of a middle-aged caricature for me I think he really taught me something about life and aging well yeah now you put it that way I agree <laughs> I do. And I felt much more, yeah, I connected with a lot more with him than I did with her. Um, I found her a bit, mm. I don't know, not as easy to fall in love with. I mean, I like. I thought yeah. she was a great character, but I think she was just so bound up in so much grief and change and, you know, she hated where she lived so much. And I wanted to hear more about the that daughter so and I wanted to know that the daughter was okay. Yeah. I feel like she was a bit too absent. Maybe she was. That was intentional. Yes. She was just preserving her privacy, which is yeah, fair privacy. It it was hard to get a real understanding of her husband too, because he just mm. sounded like such a difficult, awful mm. person. But there's more to that there too. Yeah, of they course. just weren't rounded enough, were they? No. And funny, they she hated. They lived on Roosevelt Island. Now I don't know if you'd ever heard or been to Roosevelt Island, but I had no. never heard of it. I've gone and googled it since because um, I was fascinated with the yeah. stories. And I have to put the photo of it that I found the aerial oh. shot up on um on our in our newsletter because um it's this amazing thin piece of land, isn't it? Mm. And like I what I read, it was only um two hundred and forty meters wide and three point two kilometer kilometers long. Wow. I think it's got like eleven thousand people who live on it, but it's history of being this place filled with hospitals and lunatic asylums between the twenties and the seventies. I thought it was fascinating and that the, the atmosphere that that history had left on the island, which was known as Welfare Island apparently until 1973, mm. and the fact she lived in the apartment complex that was one a very notorious lunatic asylum, Yeah, I just thought there could have been so much more there around how where she was in her life, the fact she, the parallels of living in that kind of place and then mm. the stark contrast of how Edward and Paula found living on that island was com- mm. it was completely different that could have been another big character for me I think I find it really interesting that we've both I think you're, you're spot on in saying it feels like a New Yorker article essay or something and it's quite short there's so much that's made us think about and talk about mm. you know yeah. it's, it's really triggered a whole lot of ideas and conversations and like I want to I remember you telling me about that book by the Nigerian author a while ago Mm -hmm. and I'm really intrigued to read more about that now but it also this book made me think of another book I was reading actually listening to on audible it's another good narrator called the marmalade diaries and it's Mm. by Ben Aitken and it's similar in that it's a story about this unlikely friendship he's 34 and he moves into the home of an 84-year-old win- widow 
called Winnie, who's struggling since her husband died and needing a bit of help with shopping and, you know, opening jars and things. And so it's very cheap rent and he decides to move. He's a struggling writer needing cheap rent and he moves in and then London goes into lockdown. So it's a bit like a lockdown diary. Ah. And um, it's about how their friendship evolves over marmalade toast and tea in the mornings and then they take turns in cooking dinner. It's nothing like Edward's elaborate menus. It's more fish pie or spaghetti bolognese. She's such a character and he really gets in deep and understands her eccentricities and he just develops both her character and his understanding about living with someone so much older with this huge history behind her really well. So I guess in this book, in Marmalade Diaries, food's the supporting character, whereas I think in Dinner with Edward, you're right, food is the main character and I maybe my window into books being so character-driven I think is what made it harder, less accessible for me with not feeling like I really knew Isabel. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's a great observation. Definitely going to go and um, queue up uh, the Marmalade Diaries because mm. marmalade, marmalade Toast is my oh, it's really fun. morning routine. I'm a, <laughs> I do love my Marmalade Toast. So got my name You'll love it. it. She, yeah. She's, she's very blunt and she's hilarious in that very eccentric English kind of way. And, yeah, no, no, definitely listen to it. And good narrator. Really, it's good escapism. Good narrator. It's a male narrator so it feel, and it's it's not Oh, actually, it's Ben. It's the author narrating it. It's, I mean, I was thinking, is it too early to read a lockdown kind of contemporary book? But actually, it's funny because it's the very first one. So it's 2020. So it kind of feels, and Mm. and the London lockdown was so different to ours. I mean, Mm. Winnie is still going out visiting people in lockdown. It's so (laughs) different over there. So no, it didn't depress me in that way. And it was just, yeah, fascinating. And they watch TV together and she comments on the news and yeah, it's good escapism, good car. Okay, good. I'm always looking for books to listen to in the car because I find I can't listen to books in the car that are too tricky or complicated or the language is too much because you know you're concentrating on other things and then you're like oh, hang on what's just gone? what's just happened so something which is just a bit of a easier story to follow is perfect thank you for recommending this book Jermaine I think we both well I loved it I, I really did enjoy it but um and I, I wouldn't have known about it if you hadn't told me about it so thank you Should we move on to the letter for today? Yes. Okay. All right, our letter. I'm a grandmother in my 70s and would love people to talk more about cooking disasters. <laughs> I worry about Instagram images that show perfect children and perfect food on perfect plates and forget about the reality behind the scenes. It would be a breath of fresh air to know we're not so perfect as this can feel intimidating sometimes and has the potential to stop one from inviting others over for fear the meal not tasting good. But then maybe that's me, not as confident as I could be. Some of my fondest memories of my childhood and my children's childhoods are the food disasters. I will never forget my mother cooking her Irish stew in the pressure cooker. And for some reason, it blew its lid, sending carrots, potatoes and meat onto the ceiling and surrounds. She swore (laughs) and poured herself a whiskey while dad had to get the ladder out and clean up as the ceiling was high and there were uh, carrot bits all over the walls. 
I once made my son a rocket cake with sparklers on it for liftoff, but the only trouble was that on a hot day, the weight of the icing made it fall over and the sparklers burnt the lawn. <laughs> then my youngest wanted a Dolly Varden cake in January. Needless to say, the cake melted while waiting for the candles to be blown out. I couldn't tell her that it wasn't a good choice of cake for that time of year, even though the ice cream was yum. Happy memories. I'm a quilter and in the patchwork quilting world, there is an unwritten rule that if you make a mistake, leave it. Now all my grandchildren are at an age where they can sit at the table without anyone falling off chairs or spilling drinks or needing help cutting up their food. I wonder what an easy recipe may be for the ages 6 to 70 to enjoy together and not shake my confidence. I would also love to read about lives that aren't as perfect as they look on Insta. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you so much for those um, for that letter <laughs> and I love your um, disasters. I had a similar one with a lid coming off. I remember when the kids were little I'd made this beautiful chicken soup and they were still, I think one of them was still really little just coming onto solid. So I was blending up some of the soup mm. to give to Tommy, I think. Anyway, and I didn't put the lid on properly and it just went everywhere oh, like all no. over the ceiling yeah. and I remember just like sliding down the counter onto the floor and just sat there and just cried <laughs> and there's like chicken soup like dripping onto my head and the kids oh. were laughing at me and anyway so I wish I had handled that with more as much grace as your um mum dear letter writer and I look I do agree <laughs> that Instagram you know is can often only show the good pretty and perfect meals and people you know in these perfect kitchens doing amazing things. And then I think, you know, I do worry that sort of styled food perfection on Instagram, etc., can make people, you know, anxious about just trying new things because what if it doesn't look like that or I haven't got, you know, nice plates like that or whatever it might be. And I do worry that I might be a part of this problem because I, you know, share a lot of food on my little corner of the internet or on Instagram. But I think, you know, I do try and make, and, and a lot of people on Instagram now are trying to make the food look good or look appetizing so people want to cook it um, mm. and try something new. So, you know, I don't, personally, I follow Instagram feeds that look nice and appetizing because it gets me excited and inspired to, to try these dishes. So I guess what we have to realize, I suppose, is when we're looking at that is that those photos are probably someone spent like an hour styling it up and they might have had a been in a studio with a food prep person or you know they might know exactly where the nice light yeah. is in their house and a bit of a grain of salt there but I get it like you can flick through and think oh my god this is all too good too beautiful I can't I can't keep up but I would also say yeah definitely I mean cooking cooking disasters are a part of life and they're a part of learning you know and I think cooking like anything is is a skill that you practice and you get better and better at and you know, even, and I think I say this a lot, is just having those back pocket recipes, you know, a few recipes for each course that you just can always know will work and you can feel completely confident and then you riff on them and then you make those recipes your own and try something new. Yeah, I think it's just practice and, and choosing to cook things when you've got big people, come, a lot of people coming over that you're really confident doing. As I said before, you wouldn't make, mm. you know, crepes or souffles, you know, if you're having a big dinner party um, <laughs> for the first time. But I, I wanted to share another cooking disaster of mine because we all have them and I think they're good stories. But, for example, I, I think when my daughter Alice was young, like in year three maybe, I missed a note from school saying that everyone had to bring in a cake for a fundraiser. And Al woke me up. She goes, Mom, where's the cake? And I went, oh, okay. So I'm sort of half away getting all my ingredients and making a recipe called Mum's Five Minute Chocolate Cake, which is in a basket by the door. And I will share in the newsletter as well because if you haven't got it yet, it's just you basically throw all the ingredients into a mixer. You can even do it by hand if you want. Mix it for five minutes, tip it into the right. cake tin, happy days. It's just 
such a good, easy recipe and always makes a yummy cake. Anyway, but I had a jar of cooking salt next to a jar of caster sugar and, of course, I took the salt without thinking and I'm, I made the cardinal <laughs> error of not tasting my food before I cooked it. So you always taste your batter, taste everything before you put, put it into the cake tin or into the oven. And I didn't do that this morning because I was rushing. Anyway, so I sent the cakes off to school and the, the teacher who was just lovely called me laughing at lunchtime. She goes, thanks so much for sending in the cakes. So it was a little bit salty for the kids. Anyway, so my salt cake. And, you know, I'm so call myself a food writer. I was mortified. but And we still laugh about that now. But, you know, I think that's the thing. Kitchen disasters, you've just got to laugh them off and, and not take it too seriously. seriously. Obviously, food waste is not you know, obviously it's not a good thing. And in that case, that cake was not salvageable. So it went to the chooks at the school. <laughs> it was salvageable. Right? Well, yeah, exactly. I, there was not thrown out. But, you know, this is what I love about cooking. And I do think the stakes are pretty low. Like, you know, if you have a disaster, if your souffle doesn't rise, if your cake, if you drop your cake when you're bringing it out of the oven, or if you burn, you know, something, it's still, you can fashion something out of it. You can still eat it. It'll still be yummy. And I think we've talked about this before, actually, on the podcast, this idea of don't let it discourage you if you have a disaster. Just turn it into a, a good story. Another mm. fa- favourite food writer of mine, and I've mentioned her many times in the pod, Laurie Colwyn in Home Cooking, she's got a whole chapter called Kitchen Horrors and she chronicles some spectacular kitchen disasters, which I highly recommend. But to the recipe, so our lovely letter writer has asked for a recipe to inspire confidence and appeal to ages from 6 to 70. First, I would say it sounds like she's cooking for quite a lot of people. I'm not sure exactly, but I'm definitely with Nigel Slater, another favourite food writer of mine, when he says, I can't pretend I enjoy cooking for large numbers. Two, great. Three, fun. Four or five, a walk in the park. Walk in the park. <laughs> Yet I have always felt anything more than six crosses some sort of invisible line between pleasure and work. I was trying to think of a menu or recipes that will avoid it feeling like work, and those are things that can be done in advance, so there's no stress. What I'm suggesting is, and it's a bit indulgent because I know beef can be a bit expensive, but if you can find a good cut, a rare a roast beef fillet, you could either serve it hot or cold, which is what I love. So you could actually roast it the day before, mm-hmm. wrap it up, and then just slice it really thinly. So it goes a long way. You don't need much. And then I would do mm. a really good golden bubbling potato gratin that everybody will love. Like we've had oh, this at family events yeah. and tiny kids just have that for lunch, which is fine, you know. It just doesn't have to be the perfect meal every single time. Everybody loves that. And the, the creamy juices from the gratin yeah. make a really nice kind of juice for that fillet of beef, whether it's hot or cold. So if you've got the gratin really hot, you know, the cold beef will be beautiful. And then I would have some green beans. So you just boil them up on the just before, um, mm-hmm. steam them, whatever, with, and I'd toss through like a salsa verde. So that adds some zing, a bit mm-hmm. of sauce for the roast beef, a bit of Dijon mustard. And then for dessert, I would, if you're going to go to dessert, you could even just buy a cake or get some ice cream, whatever. But if you wanted to go the whole hog, I would make a fudgy chocolate cake with buttercream. You can have this cake made the day before. I'm going to share the recipe for all of these in the show notes in our newsletter for the subscribers. But I love this idea of um, this beautiful, fudgy, glorious cake sitting on a plate or a cake stand. When everyone arrives, you might have next to some flowers on the sideboard with your glasses and you just feel like such a domestic goddess if if that was the case when everyone arrived. You can make it the day before and have it in the fridge and just pull it out. <laughs> and I always think of this cake. I, I made up the recipe after I saw that movie, It's Complicated, with Meryl Streep, and she makes this 
fudgy buttercream oh, chocolate cake. Yes. I love the yep. food in that movie. And I was like, oh my God, I want to be the woman that in has a kitchen. cake like that under a cloche in the kitchen, just ready for when people pop over. So that to me, like if you're having your whole family for a beautiful Sunday lunch and you've got that chocolate cake on the sideboard, you'd just be like winning, I reckon. And it's actually a really easy yep. recipe, really, really easy. So that is what I would suggest. You can take it all or leave it all or just maybe one little part of it. But all of the recipes will be in our next newsletter. How, do you think those oh, might I can't make wait, you feel yeah. confident, Jermaine? Nothing earth-shatteringly hard oh, in there. Well, no, and I, I love the fact it can all be done beforehand. Like, you could, yes. you know, then you know your meat's going to be fine because you've already cooked it and just yeah, slicing exactly. it. And then, and again, you make the cake before. And if there is a disaster, you just run up to the cake shop for the cake. Exactly. Or, the, or but, buy um, a cake and just make the buttercream and <laughs> ice it and pretend it was all yours. <laughs> oh yes yeah yeah this is a, they're hacks aren't they they're life hacks oh yeah 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 hashtag life hack <laughs> I, um, I love potatoes in any form but potato oh. gratin particularly so I'm looking forward to that recipe but actually that just makes me think that's been one of my cooking disasters has oh, been no. a potato gratin where the potatoes just didn't cook but the top oh. kind of burnt and so then you kind of like sliced oh it was a disaster that's the worst it I seems tell like you, such a beginner's I've done that and in fact we used to do lunches here at the farm we would get do a farm tour and we'd have 20 or 30 guests each time mm-hmm. and I did a gratin the same and the potatoes were not cooked through and I was mortified because all these people paying money to come and eat on our farm but what I've ever since that day <laughs> I've adopted a Nigella Lawson hack where you you slice the potatoes and you actually yeah put them in your kind of milk mixture with nutmeg and a bay leaf and a few things, and then you actually mm-hmm. cook them on the stovetop till the potatoes are tender, the sliced so you can check one, and then oh. you put them in the gratin dish, and at that point you can put it in the fridge overnight. And then the next morning you might grate over some cheese, wow. put some breadcrumbs or whatever on top, and then you cook it yeah. so you are completely confident that every piece of potato will be perfectly oh, cooked perfect. and there's not that horrible, oh, my God, I'm biting into a raw <laughs> potato. Crunchy. Oh, yeah. So it's not a beginner's mistake. I think all of us have been there, but that's a good way around. Perfect. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. I am definitely going to try this recipe. And actually that makes me think of um, Edward in Dinner with Edward and his idea for cooking the potato chips where he – does he freeze mm. the potatoes and then he yes. cooks them from frozen or something? There was something really interesting about that method there too, wasn't there? Mm, I'm just actually trying to flick through. Fine. Yes, he did. I think he did cook them from frozen and then he'd shallow fry them. So I'm going to have to come back to you on that one. Put that method in the show notes. Put that in the Mm, newsletter. Definitely. He had that thing about things being frozen like with the pastry too, didn't he? Oh, putting ice in the pastry. I thought that was really – no, (laughs) I've never used ice chips. I thought – so for anyone listening who hasn't read the book, he makes his galette, which he's really famous for, and the pastry he puts, he uses lard, which I don't love using. I just stick with butter, but I know that lard makes mm. an extra kind of flaky pastry. He puts ice chips in as he ma- mm. mixes the flour and the butter and everything together, which I guess is a good idea because it um, keeps the pastry so cold, which is what you want. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, mm. yes, but to books <laughs> because I'm, I love that. I love that Nigel Slater quote. It's a nice segue into my book, actually, because for me it brought up all these associations around numbers of children. Like, did you remember? Did you ever have people say to you, you know, you're a couple, and then you ha- and you have one child, and then when you have two children, you're a family. You've got one child for each hand, and then when you have three, you become outnumbered. Um, <laughs> you've got three kids, thinking, don't oh, you? That- yeah. Oh yeah, you've got two, don't you? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, 
Oh, is that the invisible line like he's talking about with cooking for more than uh, six? Uh-huh. And then that made me think about cars and how people also go, oh, well, if you've got three kids, you can still fit into a normal, uh, you know, five-seater car. And if you have more than three kids, then, you know, you need a seven-seater car. And anyway, so then kids and chaos kind of um, were in my head when I was reading this letter, I think, just because <laughs> it's about the chaos of family life that hasn't changed through the generations and the the mm. chaos of trying to feed a family but actually finding you know you're pulling bits of carrot off the ceiling or you're you're crying <laughs> as your chicken soup's dripping on your head <laughs> or children throw food on the ground or and I kind of then started thinking about this whole that yeah the aspiration or the the Instagram world of feeling lesser than and everyone else is more perfect than you but I kind of wondered if that's actually come from our own fantasies of how of what we get in our head about how our dinners should look or how our children should behave, you know, that before social media we kind of carried all those fantasies in our heads and now we're actually looking at them on a screen. Mm, mm. Um, And, yeah, so when I was thinking about Book to Prescribe, I was thinking about this idea of how does reality break through fantasy and also I want to get away from social media because I was thinking about books that kind of explore that literally, you know, with a social media backstory that's so false or whatever. But then I thought, no, let's get away from that and remind ourselves that this pressure to keep up with the Joneses or whatever, it's always been there and it's just in the past it was on a smaller scale because we could only keep up with the people in our actual neighbourhoods or whatever. Mm. Um, and now with the social media, we've sort of got this global stage. So I've gone back to the 1950s to this fantasy of having perfect meals and perfect children and I'm prescribing a book by Shirley Jackson who is actually best known as a horror writer. I don't know if you've read like We've Always Lived in the Castle or The Haunting of Hill House, but she also has written a couple of memoirs um, and one of them is called Life Among the Savages. And it's all about, and actually I think she had these articles published in housekeeping magazines in the 50s, but they've, be, they've become this book. She's so funny. She makes me laugh. It's all, Life Among the Savages is all about being a mother and a housewife. And she and her husband and a baby live in New York and then they decide they need a bigger house. They move to Vermont to a house with pillars and start living this seemingly idyllic country, well, I guess it's a mix between the country and suburbs life and um, and the comedy that kind of comes from that. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes because I guess I can convey her humour more in the quotes than me trying to describe it. So soon after they moved to Vermont, she writes, we put the Christmas tree in the corner of the living room where the light shone at night out between the pillars. We raked leaves on the front lawn and went sledding down the hillside we began to speak slightingly of city folk. I have, as I say, never found a way of life preferable to this. It's only fault, aside from the backbreaking labour and the vicious pie crust which refused to brown, <laughs> is that it goes on and on without, it seems, any major change at all. I observe my neighbours and it seems to me that they are content to live on, registering and employing each day, but not in the least distinguishing one day beyond another, And although that is obviously the best way of passing time, it makes, I feel, for little or no excitement. So you start getting a hint that she's, you know, kind of like, I can't believe I'm living this fantasy or pretend fantasy life. And time goes on and they end up with three children. And then the reality of life with small children versus the fantasy of perfection 
kicks in again. I have another quote to read. Oh, speaking of trying to keep up with the Joneses, she starts thinking that she may need some demitasse coffee cups. And what persuaded me to think about demitasse cups at all was a statement made recently by one of my close friends who said that she personally did not like our big cups for dinner coffee, but preferred a demitasse because she liked her coffee scalding hot. That, of course, sent me off into several tangents on her housekeeping. She is a very good friend and I would not for the world mention to her that the last time we visited there, there was no soap in the bathroom. I am terribly fond of her, but it is true that her guest room windows do not open. She's a grand girl and if she likes her coffee in small cups at my house, she shall have it that way, in spite of the fact that the last time we dined there, I found a spider in the salad. Um, she talks about then the fantasy kicks in about perhaps if we had demitasse cups a local couple who have no children and have exhibited a vast distaste for our hospitality would come to call perhaps as a matter of fact if we had demitasse cups we would we could overlook the fact that the vast distaste of the local couple was provoked by our short-tempered reception of their resentment of our children we should live more graciously after all I, I just thought she she tells life like it is but with such humor and and grace and it just and and then I'll end on a a meal a breakfast meal that she has which again this is not Instagram worthy but much more real and dad walks into the kitchen I turned around Janie was balancing the fruit juice glasses one on top of the other Laurie was making a train of knives and forks Sally finished with her bottle abruptly and threw it on the floor it's hot my husband remarked He sat down at the table, rescued a knife and fork from Laurie and a glass of fruit juice from Janie. Why do you let the children play with things on the table, he asked. Don't they have enough toys of their own? I did not feel equal to answering. I put the eggs, the toast and the coffee on the table and sat down. I could tell by looking that my coffee was going to be too hot and it was perfectly clear that the toast was burned. What's this junk, Laurie said, regarding his plate. Once, Janie's observed through a mouthful of egg, once there was a little boy and he had no mother or father and he ran out into the middle of the street. What happened to him? Laurie asked with interest. He was eaten by a truck, Janie said demurely. So, yes, it's kind of (laughs) that whole chaos of family life told with maybe a sense of horror, which is, you know, she was a horror story writer, but I just thought that might be a a good way to have a laugh and realise that reaching for perfection is kind of a timeless experience and it's actually the disasters that are the most endearing yeah. memories of all aren't they yeah absolutely and that um what is it perfection is the enemy of creativity I think it's so true you know mm. um and no meal you cook is going to be perfect like especially when there's lots of kids around I remember when ours were smaller and you'd have you know everyone over for for dinner and it was just complete chaos it was just food everywhere and I think you just have to let it go a noise yeah a noise but yeah I think that lunches are good you know the the recipes we were talking about before if you could be outside and and just Mm. forget about it being perfect and all Instagram worthy etc because I mean nothing really is and and the other thing I would say about Instagram is I'm unfollowing people all the time. Anyone whose feed makes me feel bad about myself or that my house is in a certain mm. way or my garden, I'm unfollow, unfollow, unfollow. I own, and I say this to my kids as well, like only follow people who inspire you and lift you up, you know, mm. and make you feel good. 
we don't have to follow everybody and everybody's feeds, you know, they'll, they'll leave a different shape on you to, to, depending on where you are in your life as well. Yes. So I think totally. only following people who make you feel happy and inspired. So It's actually a good life lesson about friends too, isn't it, with kids? Mm. Like, you know, you, you, your friends are people who make you feel good about yourself and it's company you enjoy and, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, mm. on that note, I've enjoyed your company greatly yeah. this morning, Jermaine. Thank you so much. I think thank we you. have come to the end of this episode, which actually is quite a long one, I've just noticed. So thanks for staying with us. We had lots to talk yeah. about in the end. It was such a small yeah. book at the beginning. I was like, oh, what have I got to say? But of course, all sorts of tangents and threads were able to be pulled out of it, um, as always. I just want to quickly say, please send in any letters that you have, any questions that situations predicaments you want us to prescribe a recipe or a book for we would love to hear from you what do our letters get letter writers get do you a little treat from- oh they get a case of highgate wine from single vineyard sellers so it's yeah amazing Look, anything else you wanted yeah. to add before we finish up yeah i think the only thing left to add is our next book which is lessons in chemistry which actually is set in the 1950s just like oh, yeah. um, life among the savages i hadn't oh. thought of that <laughs> I know you've read it. I've been saving it to read. You've you've read it and loved it, haven't you? So there'll be a good conversation too. Yeah, and I think many of um, our wonderful listeners might have come across it too because a few have mentioned it in mm. uh, Instagram, etc. It's it's such a popular book. I think it's being made into a film as we speak, and it's just a great wow. read. And and actually, I've I've heard that it's really good to listen to. That the narrator is excellent oh. as well. So if you prefer to listen to your books, oh yes, um, and actually, there's an interview at the end of the um, book narration apparently with the author. Oh, oh terrific. Um, oh good cool okay let's talk about next time yeah just finally thank you so much to Chrissy Reading our incredible producer for stitching our words together and bleeping out any pauses while we search for a page or whatever and Smith and Jones (laughs) Bathurst based duo who write very special music thank you for letting us use your song Small Town Woman and that's it I think we'll see you next month thank you so much to all we will be yeah, well, we'll see our subscribers in our Substack. And if you're interested in joining up, you can do a seven-day free trial. And after that, it's $5 a month to receive word from us and to support us. And we are incredibly grateful. So thank you so much. And it's something yeah. to eat and something to read at Substack.com. Thank you so much. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks, Jermaine. Right. Happy reading. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking Just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on the highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to find my way in a lonesome world And I ain't a whiskey girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world Wandering, wanting to roam its way
Trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world. 